Time of the Willow. They're getting closer, and we don't know the secret yet. It's not too late, child. Don't lose hope. Um, sorry for the hold-up, folks. There seems to be a slow-moving train up ahead, so we gotta sit here for a spell. You just remain seated, and we'll be right with you. W Radio. Your information station. Hello and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 130 for the week of August 2nd, 2009. Thank you all so very much for tuning in once again. We're going to start off with some news from Walt Disney World, including the company's recent financial reports and how they may affect you in the future, and testing a new way to get your fast passes in the parks. We'll also visit the Walt Disney World rumor mill and look at a few quick items, including some possible new shows coming to the parks as well. In the next installment of my Epcot Center retrospective series, we'll journey aboard my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine to 1982 and take a look at the history and the future of transportation as we take a ride on the wonderful world of motion. I'll announce the winner of our Name That Disney World Tune contest and then play more of your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. In this week's Walt Disney World News, the Walt Disney Company reported results for the company's fiscal third quarter this past Thursday and said that fourth quarter room reservations at the United States theme parks are running 7% behind last year. Profits fell 26% during the three months that ended June 27th, dropping from nearly $1.3 billion a year ago to $954 million. Revenue also sank 7% for the quarter to $8.6 billion. TV advertising, DVD sales, and merchandise royalties all suffered, and operating profits at the parks and resorts fell 19% to $521 million, while total revenue was down 9% to $2.8 billion. Disney blamed the division's struggles in part on lower guest spending at Walt Disney World as discounts and promotions to get people to the parks cut down on their margin on hotel rates and ticket prices. Combined per capita guest spending at Disney World and Disneyland also fell 6% during the quarter compared with the year earlier. But because of the discounts, although profits were down, attendance at the parks rose as combined attendance at the company's parks in the United States rose 3% from a year ago with Disney World staying the same and Disneyland up about 10%. So as the crowds seemed to dictate, There appeared to be no signs of a recession based solely on looking at the crowds in the parks, but the bottom line comes from what they're spending once they're there. And what can this possibly mean to guests in the future? Well, speculation leads to believe that you might see additional discounts and promotions 
like the free dining and something like the buy four, get three deals, again, in order to get people to the parks. So believe it or not, now may be the best time to take a Walt Disney World vacation or look ahead to the next year. Now, that being said, in the wake of the recent announcement, Walt Disney World is once again raising the ticket prices for its theme parks. Again, all the more reason to shop around for discounts, use a Disney specialized travel agent, etc. Starting Sunday, August 2nd, Disney is going to increase the base price of a one-day, one-park ticket to $79. And that's up $4, or about 5.3%. The price of a similar ticket for a child between ages 3 and 9 is going to rise $5, or 7.9%, to $68. However, the prices for multi-day tickets increased only about 25 to 4.7%, meaning still that the longer you stay, the better deal you get on ticket prices. Disney's also raising the prices on Park Hopper and Water Park Fun and More features, which allow admission to uh, the Water Parks and Disney Quest to $52, and that's up from $50. Now, remember, the last time Disney raised its admission prices was about the same time last year, and you know, looking forward, you wonder how some of these changes and some of the lower reported earnings are going to affect some of the rumors that we've been talking about over the past few weeks and months and even today about some changes and some improvements coming to the parks. Disney is also currently testing a concept of a new centralized fast pass system. Right now it's under test over at Disney's Animal Kingdom. So if you head on over to It's Tough to Be a Bug near the fast pass distribution area, instead of getting fast passes for Tough to Be a Bug, there are now six machines set up where you can get fast passes for Dinosaur, Expedition Everest, and the Kilimanjaro Safaris. Now, if you wanted to go over to those individual attractions, you can still get fast passes from there as well. From what I've heard from guests, there wasn't a lot in terms of signage, but other than some small signs on top of the machines themselves, but you could also go and look at the tip board to find out that they had the centralized fast pass system. One of the comments I received from a guest was that you couldn't tell what time you were going to get for your fast pass before you put your ticket into the machine or what the current wait times were for the attraction. So it wasn't worth getting a fast pass now or waiting or going to see if the attraction had a very short wait time or even a walk-on. It's going to be very interesting to see over the next few weeks and months, and again, remembering this is a trial period, to see what the guest reaction and response to this is going to be. Now, remember, too, for a lot of first-time visitors to Walt Disney World, Fast Pass can sometimes be a little bit confusing. So you wonder how this might affect them as opposed to other guests as well. But if anybody have, has used these before, if anybody has any comments or thoughts about these centralized Fast Pass locations, pros and cons, would you maybe like to see them in some of the other parks? By all means, please email me or call me from the parks and let me know how it's working. Over in Tomorrowland, demolition has begun on the long-closed Tomorrowland Skyway Station. I'm being told that it should be completed in time for Space Mountain's grand reopening in the fall, probably sometime in November, but I have no details as to what exactly is being done there. I would expect, and this is pure speculation on my part, that possibly the second level might be removed or changed somewhat. Hopefully the waterfall that is there uh, is going to remain, uh, and I'm wondering again if that entire structure might change a little bit maybe give a little bit more of an expansive view of Space Mountain from other areas of the parks quickly moving over to the Walt Disney World rumor mill 
Over in the Magic Kingdom, I'm hearing rumors of a new show possibly coming to Liberty Square in the fall. And now what makes this show, and the rumor, special is that it's supposedly going to be part of an existing attraction, and I don't mean the Diamond Horseshoe Saloon. The show is going to reportedly be held aboard the Liberty Bell Riverboat, and it's going to feature characters and dancers from the upcoming Princess and the Frog film, and is rumored to be called Tiana's Showboat Jubilee. Obviously, I'll keep a very close eye on this and report any additional news or rumors as I hear more. Over in Epcot, the new tequila bar in the Mexico Pavilion is rumored to be called Cava del Tequila and should be open in time for the 2009 Epcot International Food and Wine Festival starting on September 25th. The new tequila bar is going to have more than 70 varieties of tequila available, and in fact, events are already planned for the venue, including a Mexico tequila tasting event on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays during the Food and Wine Festival from 3 p.m., That is $35 plus tax per person. Moving over to Future World, living with the land may be getting some changes, but sadly the old tune isn't coming back. Instead, larger boats may be installed to accommodate additional guests. And while the attraction itself may not change dramatically, the rumor is that the ride path may be altered somewhat to accommodate the larger vehicles. Speaking of the land, Rumors of a possible new show replacing the Circle of Life have been swirling, this time maybe using characters from other films, including Pixar. And I'm wondering if WALL-E comes to anybody else's mind. Finally, there's a rumor that a Phineas and Ferb meet and greet is being planned for Walt Disney World and may take place at Disney's Hollywood Studios later on this year. Again, as with all these rumors, they are pure rumor, uh, but of course... We'll keep our eyes and ears open. If you hear anything, please let me know. And I'll leave you with a question, kind of related to the last rumor about the Phineas and Ferb meet and greet. Meet and greet is becoming very, very popular, especially with the rumored changes coming to Fantasyland. We may be seeing many more meet and greets from many Disney princesses. So my question to you is, what type or what characters would you like to see in a meet and greet and in what park do you think they should be seen? Email me at lou at wdwradio.com or call the voicemail 888-703-2171. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the wonderful world of motion. General Motors now invites you to travel the open road to discover that when it comes to transportation, it's always fun to be free. Walt Disney World is an incredibly kinetic environment. From watching people walk to the spinning of a carousel to the soaring elephants around a hub and some of our favorite attractions and things to do around the parks involve transportation, whether it be a monorail ride, a trip aboard the Walt Disney World Railroad, a boat ride to Wilderness Lodge, or a carriage ride along the Sasagula, we all enjoy modes of transportation as entertainment, as opposed to our daily use of them in everyday life. But either way, transportation is important to everybody, and even Walt Disney himself had a fascination with horses and trains and the monorails he brought to Disneyland. And throughout history, 
man and woman have looked for ways to improve upon how we get from here to there. Whether it's going from walking to a Segway, from the horse to the car, or from the paddle to the propeller. So it's only fitting that Epcot, which was a park that was dedicated to the idea of improving upon what we already have and looking towards the future, would include a pavilion about the history and the evolution of transportation. But while Epcot looked forward, today we're going to look back and we're going to take the Walt Disney World Wayback Machine to 1982 and continue in our Epcot retrospective series and take a look at the world of motion. And joining me is a man that he knows how to put the past behind him. Thank you, Timon. And that's Ryan Wilson from the Main Street Gazette. It's, it's always a pleasure. It's always a great time to be here. <laughs> as you wait for 10 minutes as I do my introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to get it all out there. There's a lot of stuff out there. There is. And we were saying offline that, that there's a lot to World of Motion um, from its history and from the, the attraction itself because was, there were so many elements to it and so many great scenes and, and some things I think that really differentiated World of Motion from some of the original pavilions in Epcot Center. It was definitely one of those pavilions where it started the minute you saw it and it took you through the entire, you know, the queue, the attraction, the post show. It just, it, it was all kinetic. It was all alive. And there was just, it, there was depth and layer upon layer in the attraction. And let's start off by talking about the history of the, of the attraction and sort of how it came to be. And, and we've talked with some of our other Epcot retrospective series about how important corporate sponsorship was to having these pavilions come to be. And this was no exception, obviously being sponsored by General Motors. Right. They they needed something that was a symbol of transportation. General Motors wanted to come in. You know, they had seen what they could do with Ford, a World's Fair. And they said, we want to see what you can do for us. And we want to be part of Epcot Center. And they were smart because they saw how successful Ford became because of the World's Fair, wanted to make sure nobody else got in there first. So back as early as 1977, they signed their 10-year deal. Yeah, and you could tell definitely a deal that worked for them because they, they, you know, time and time again since then, continued to extend it and renegotiate their contract because they wanted to be the transportation person for Epcot. Yeah, and we'll talk about that as we sort of wrap things up about the future and the sponsorships and all that, because who knows what the future might hold for for General (laughs) Motors. But if you notice, too, and if you're familiar with the the Magic Skyway and whatnot in in the World's Fair, you can actually see some of the similarities between the two. You've got the raised track. It goes outside the building. You've got this model city of the future. So, yeah. General Motors was definitely paying attention to what Ford was doing and what was working for him as well. Yeah, the way the way that whole system worked and the way they, they took people through all the transportation moments and the World's Fair was just a tiny piece of that. And then to get it in Epcot where it was going to be permanent and people were already coming by the, you know, the thousands, they knew they had something there. Absolutely. And what made this pavilion unique in addition to what took place inside was outside itself. I mean, you've got this giant wheel shaped pavilion that it's got, it's covered in stainless steel. It's 65 feet high, 325, 320 feet in diameter, something very, that you can very clearly see as you entered Epcot and as you walked around. 
So I think one thing about this pavilion, too, is that it was very deliberately constructed so that it, it stood out. I mean, you could really see this, you know, as you're walking through World Showcase, sort of acting very much like a weenie because it really reflected the sun and the light and everything else that surrounded it. Not only that, you had this giant wheel, which not only conveyed the message that GM was trying to send and the transportation message, but it was very different than even what you see on that side of Future World at Horizons and you had Universe of Energy, which were very, you know, cut angular buildings. This was different. This was, you know, it was a way to see the wheel. Exactly. Very much giving you a hint of what you're going to see inside. Although original concept art, and you can find this in some of the older books and things like that, was a little bit different. You actually sort of had multiple circles around sort of a giant center hub, and you would have had two attractions inside. You would have had one attraction with the ride track that was outside the actual structure and another one inside that taught you more about the history of transportation. One thing that was very notable about it was as you walked up to the center of this, you had this giant walk-up ramp that led you to the second level. And inside, that's where you boarded the Omnimover that sort of took you up and around and inside and back outside the back of the building. But that changed relatively quickly after the original concept was done to the single circle. And really, the concept did not change very much at all from concept drawing once it got to that point to the final version. Right. And with these other two, you know, the two attractions, you see elements that you that you would see in World of Motion and later on in Test with the outside track with the ramp. And instead of walking, but you would have your vehicle that would transport you up it. So they kept these pieces and they, and they brought it all together and they made one coherent attraction. Right. And one thing, too, about the building and about the layout, and, and we'll touch on this later on, which, which really ended up being, I think, brilliant for General Motors, was about half of the ground floor was taken up by something called the Trans Center. And you can interpret Trans Center to be a 365-day-a-year showroom for GM vehicles and technology. Yeah, it gave you all these glimpses of what's here now, what what we're working on for the future. It, it was just, it was incredible. You know, I grew up in a, basically a tire warehouse, and it was, you know, seeing the future of where that was going, and it, it was fantastic. You could spend hours just looking at the exhibits and shows they had there. Absolutely. And we should mention World of Motion, an opening day pavilion. Uh, and if you look back, some of the early press and publicity materials from early 1981, Described it as such, described it as this kaleidoscope of lights, and they talked about the futuristic cityscape scenes, and that it would be presented by General Motors. They knew very early on, like we said, and we'll touch on this, because this, I think, is a very important and distinguishing element of the attraction, that it was a very whimsical, what they called a roadshow, and a very tongue-in-cheek adventure past the milestones of man's ever-accelerating mobility, and again, we'll talk about how and why that was so important. Um, but as you, one of the things, again, too, we talk about the building, but as you approach, one of the things that w was always so attractive to me was in the queue area, as you start to approach the building, you see the vehicles going outside the building and giving you a sense of, of what's to come. You see these Omnimover vehicles and you start to hear It's Fun to Be Free, uh, which is the theme song for uh, World of Motion. It's Fun to Be Free was great because it was the lyrics were by Exostio and Buddy Baker had composed the music and he arranged it into just a cornucopia of different musical arrangements, you know, an orchestra. 
you had some ragtime, you had you know jazz, you had some flutes, the drums, and it, every time it was the same song, just playing again and again. But it was the way to keep each scene cohesive. It was your introduction to what what you were going to experience, and it had the same kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, play as the scenes versus the narration had once you get into the attraction. Yeah, it was brilliant how they did that, and similar to what you get in It's a Small World, and most notably, I think, uh, The Haunted Mansion, that same kind of variations being layered over and very seamlessly transitioning from one to the next. And as you enter the building and you start to hear It's Fun to Be Free, your announcer reminds you that it is fun to be free, and, and the announcer, too, very important, and, and how he delivered his narration because it was Gary Owens and kids. Gary Owens was a, a TV star back in the seventies from a show called Rowan and Martin's Laughing, and very, very, uh, you know, he, he sort of talked to you as if he was uh, narrating a documentary. And he was very, very serious. Very much in contrast to what you were seeing, what you were hearing. Yeah, and he had been a longtime disc jockey, and he was known to be, you know, a punster and to create characters and so this was another character this was the very serious narrator giving you that if you just heard this narration it's a a documentary a history of transportation but when you take that with you know the eye candy you were giving in the scenes it it took on a whole another dimension absolutely and that comes from really two and it was obviously many many people in imagineering that worked on this but there are two people in imagineering that really you can get a sense of their feel and input and their humor. And that's Ward Kimball, who was an animator, a Disney animator, very much had um, a very sort of skewed sense of humor, as it were. And you can see a lot of that in there from the way, especially with the way the characters look um, and how the scenes are portrayed as they differ from the serious narration. And a lot, a lot, a lot of the gags and jokes and things like that come from Mark Davis. And you see his work in things like Pirates of the Caribbean and The Mansion and The Jungle Cruise. And the combination of those two, again, Ryan, with with Gary Owens giving his narration, you've got that whimsical look, but very contradictory from what you're hearing. Yeah, and you can and you can see the translation from the attractions, like you mentioned, the Haunted Mansion, the Pirates of the Caribbean. It, it has that same feel to it of, you know, this is, basically a serious subject matter but here's you know the way it looks to us and you can see their wit and their humor and it just permeated the entire attraction right and there was a lot to it too remember this this is a huge pavilion and you're talking about an attraction that's about 14 minutes long you've got 22 or so scenes more than 3300 props 16 full-size vehicles and at the time the most audio animatronics was about 150 170 including about 75 animals through this so i mean there was a lot to see and a lot to take in during this ride absolutely and you know with the automobiles and the trains and the balloons and the bikes a lot of those were authentic you know they had built them down to the last gear they were the trains they were these cars and it just gave you that sense of realism again that that offset the you know, bicycle over here being pumped up that's getting ready to, to blow up on the, the poor guy pumping the bike or the hot air balloon hooked on the house. It, it, it was very much a contrast. It was it was a comedy of contrast. And if you look at, if, if you remember the attraction or if you can find some, some videos online, and I'll try and link to those in the show notes, if you look carefully, the animatronics 
were not necessarily the most fluid. They were not the most active. They were not the most technologically advanced, which I think it, that simplicity and that whimsy is really what made a lot of these scenes very, very fun and very attractive. You weren't going there for the, the technological marvel that you might find or you might have been looking for in something like a spaceship Earth, but the simplicity of the characters and their facial expressions and what they were doing was more important than how they were doing it from an animatronic sense. Absolutely. Sometimes they had one or two motions at most that they were doing, but it was more of the snapshot you were getting of the moment that they were involved in. You weren't getting a whole story in one scene. You were getting snapshot of this period of time and this moment in the history of transportation. Exactly. And, and this is a good part to really begin telling the actual story that that's told through all these different scenes. And the first one, I think, very much illustrates the point that we're trying to make. So we're talking about how humans are... Obviously, we start off by walking. Well, we start by crawling and then eventually get to walking. But they're trying to find ways to improve it. And the first figure that we see are of cavemen who <laughs> have these huge, giant Louis Armstrong cheeks going as they're blowing on their feet that are hot from walking on you know, the sand and the dirt and, and wanting to sort of move from foot power to something else. Yeah, they have, you know, they're fanning their feet, they're blowing on them, you know, and the, the feet, if you can remember, were just beat red. Like they had been, you know, walking on hot coals all day long. And that was, yeah, this is, this was not the way we need to keep going. We needed to find some other way to keep moving. Right. And it was, I mean, it was memorable and it was funny. And again, the, you know, the, the, the figures themselves were not doing very much, but it, it very clearly illustrated what they were trying to, um, what they were trying to convey. We go from there into another large room where we uh, go from using foot power to using waterways and then using um, service animals like donkeys and elephants. Um, although I remember there, there being a flying carpet in there as well, um, sort of the next stage of transportation. Right. You, know, you had the first safe highway, they called it in the narration of the waterways, but you had the crocodiles you know, nipping at the guy's feet the entire way. And then you had the the flying carpet hanging from the ceiling and people on elephants and it looked like a you know a giant animal traffic jam really exactly and and one of my fun and one of the most memorable scenes was doing the water transportation scene where you see the guy on the ship with the giant telescope peering into the very close eye of a giant sea serpent or or dragon creature yeah, that was one of those scenes that was memorable for everyone. I think, you know, they it, and they knew that what they had with that because they put it in the guidebook for Epcot Center for years um, to, to show, hey, this is what we have in this attraction. Again, figures not moving, nothing spectacular going on there, but it's one of those typical Mark Davis sight gags that ends up being so memorable. Yeah, it hooks you in immediately. But I think the next scene uh, where we go from feet to water to Coming to the slow-moving invention of the wheel in sort of an ancient Babylon, this is the one that always elicited a laugh because you see how, again, a very simple sight gag. You see a number of men presenting their inventions, and one is holding sort of a, a square uh, on, a, on, a, on a stick while another one has a triangle. And, and the guy that finally gets it right has the circle um, on sort of a, a hub-and-spoke kind of thing with the final invention of the wheel. 
and you can tell that these are salesmen that you're that you're seeing here because even as they're being ordered out by the guards, you know they're still spinning, they're still trying to spin their triangle. They're still like, no, come on, this is this is the wheel we're gonna go with. But you have the you know the the pharaoh or the king who's really happy with the wheel, and that kind of moves you into the screen where you have various wheels from all over different civilizations. You know, Japanese wheels, Chinese you know Chinese wheels, Japanese Greek wheels, all these things just rolling along as you're moving along. Right, and giving you a historical sense of the fact that this is not taking place in just one location. There's not that one guy that invented the wheel. This is happening everywhere, sort of all at the same time, and you're getting a lot of different examples of that, like you said. Again, with the invention of the wheel comes the invention of the first used chariot lot along <laughs> alongside of it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and he's not just used chariots. You know, he has centaurs there. He has the Trojan horse that he's that that at a discount because it's been you know beat up in battle. Uh, he's he's gonna push whatever wheels he has on you. That Trojan horse was only used one time by a little old lady on a Sunday. It, it's just <laughs> just like new. So, but again, and going and talking about real history and sort of a, we we start to see our first kind of recognizable real-world historical figure, and it's Leonardo da Vinci. Again, give the man his respect. He's looking at his model of his flying machine, but ignoring the Mona Lisa, <laughs> who he's painting on the other side, and, and I love this. Again, simple throwaway gag. She's just sitting there, arms crossed, tapping her foot, just waiting. Yeah, I, I've gotten that look from my wife a couple of times. <laughs> I know the look. It's, it's You're going to be in serious trouble once you do pay attention to me. Um and even his assistant, you know, on the flying contraption, you know, with the wings, he he does not look thrilled either that he's up in this position, you know, maybe plummeting to his death here shortly. Exactly. And and again, we start getting the sense of we are now going from the land and the sea to the air. And we see sort of um, in the next scene, there's a projection in between the scenes of, of what is to come next. And that's taking to the air in a hot air balloon. And, and this guy was great. You know, he's waving to everyone. He has livestock. He has pigs. He has chickens all piled into his little basket. And he's really not going anywhere because he's got himself caught on roof. And, but, but he, you know, he's flying. He's, he's above everyone else at that point. Exactly. And again, everything that you're seeing, every scene is meant to be, you know, educational. And there's a lot to see, but there's always something funny go on, going on. So in the next scene we go from sort of using our own physical power and now starting to harness other elements and now we've reached the age of steam and gary owens tells us that nothing stands the way in progress that was my gary owens impression and we see the steam carriage again instead of seeing it kinetic and moving and the benefits of it we see it up against a bull on its horns and the passengers kind of again not moving very much but looking out to see what's going on Right. It was that it was that telltale, you know, here's what you know we're doing. We're moving forward, but we're really not moving at all. You know, this there are there are still these impediments that, you know, you come across in the middle of the wood you know, what roads. There were animals, there were these things. And they give you that, that look, that that laugh moment that you can you laugh and you're moving on to, okay, what's next? By this point you've gathered that okay, here's here's the gag, is there's a gag everywhere and so Let's keep looking for the next, you know, the next gag because it's always right around the next turn. Right. And and kind of you're seeing, you know, the world's kind of first traffic jam. And, and the scenery here was beautiful because it was this sort of crossroads 
literal crossroads of not just streets, but of technology. You know, there, there still was the guy on his horse, and there still was the ice cart. And there's all kinds of stuff going on in the foreground and, again, the background. This, this I think, Ryan, really led to this attraction's rewritability factor, because this was not a one-and-done, I've seen it all. There's so much to to have taken in in each scene and, and part of the, of the, uh, of the ride. You're absolutely right. There was so many, so many layers, so much depth to each scene. You know, you had the chickens over here. You had the, the kids picking on the ice over there. You had the sheriff up and, you know, walking over the steam train where it's being robbed. There was, there was always something that you weren't catching that you, you know, somebody, you get off and they'd be like, oh, well, did you see this? Well, no, I didn't see that. Let's, let's get back on there and see it again and let's find, you know, something else. Exactly. And the next scene, uh, another one, it's a, uh, with the advent of steam comes, of course, the steam train. And with the, <laughs> with the first steam train comes the first steam train robbery. Absolutely. He's being hijacked and you can see the guy all you know nervous. And, but it's again, it's that narration versus the scene. You have dependable, fast, safe trap, but you're being told, whereas the safe element is maybe not so much. Right, and and in addition to the scene too, we should also say that there was uh, dialogue coming from the animatronic figures as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was always that background noise, and so you were always picking up little lines that that added to the gag. Right. So you have Gary Owens talking about you know the uh, like you said you know moving away you know moving in progress and, and fast and dependable and safe travel, and you're like, no, this is completely opposite from from what we're seeing, as if he wasn't watching what he's narrating. Exactly. He was he was sitting in an armchair somewhere with a script and a microphone, you know, not not paying attention to the scene around him. Right. And it's and the next scene. Uh, it's funny because we're talking about the use of things like steam and animals moving forward, getting away from foot power. Now we go back to, you know, we come sort of almost come full circle to other forms of human power transportation. And we've got the nice, quiet countryside and the infallible combination of man and machine, the bicycle. Absolutely. And you have the, the gentleman you know, blowing up his bicycle with the, the tire, I mean, just filled to capacity. And he's ignoring that because he's watching you know, his girlfriend who's marveling at you know, the man on the unicycle. And it's just it's the brilliant comedy again of you know, we're infallible, but here's a mistake we're about to make. Right. And you've got the guy who's being chased by the dog and the other one who is in sort of the, the front of the stage who has fallen into the mud and he's got pigs all around him. Again, Mark Davis, very much a la Pirates of the Caribbean with his very prim and proper wife slash girlfriend slash lady friend in the background looking on and laughing. Yeah, it was, it was, and it almost showed the relationship of, you know, it's an infallible combination of man and machine where it was really, you know, the women were actually the more infallible of the species at that point. Right. <laughs> And of course, from here, we're getting into the age of the automobiles, or they say the age of the horseless carriage. And again, this is where this is that this is that scene that I was saying where there's so much going on. You've got the kid in his little go kart. You've got the very early automobile. You still have the horse drawn carriage. You've got the city transport bus again, and, and a very beautiful uh, scene with a lot going on, including the the cops sort of just standing by, not quite knowing what to do. Right, and you had the horse not not sure what to make of. You could see the confusion in his eyes of what are all these vehicles out on my road, and you had what, what I thought a great connection between 
you know, World Showcase and Future World, you had the omnibus in the background. And back back way back when Epcot opened, you could take an omnibus all the way around World Showcase, around the promenade. And so it was, it was almost a reminder of, hey, you know, there's, there's this outside too. You can take one of these for yourself for a ride. Absolutely. And, and this too, if you pay really close attention, this is where you start to see the introduction of the GM sponsorship because you'll start seeing vehicles here throughout from here forward in different scenes in the attraction that were either real vehicles or, or very, very detailed replicas. And of course they were made by general motors. Absolutely. You could, you could see them start to say, okay, we've, we've gotten to the point where we had come into creation. We want to start seeing our vehicles, you know, with, with the cranks, the old style horns, all of that put into this attraction so they can see, where we've come from. Exactly. And we start to reach the end of the attraction as we see the automobile really coming into prominence in the 40s and the 50s and 60s. And you see four different vehicles really giving you a sense of how automobiles are being used by the different passengers. You know, one is a a couple that was just married. Uh, The second, I think, has a group of of college kids. I might be getting these out of order. Uh, Another one has... um, wasn't it a bunch of kids, like a, a baseball team or, or something like that? Yeah, like a Little League team, right, a Little League team, yeah. Right, and the final one was the family going off on a vacation. Again, always coming back to that sense of family first, family being of paramount importance of, of everything that you see with Disney and even in these pavilions too. So I, I, I thought that was a, a neat touch. And this is where you're finally seeing these cars. They're really moving. It's almost like they're on a highway. Even though they're standing still, they're given that – that illusion of their moving and going back to, like we said, the introduction of cars that were made by GM. You had Cadillacs, you had a Chevy, you had a Pontiac. They were they were introducing their brand into the attraction. Exactly. And what I liked here too, and again, this is this is why the pavilion was appropriate here for Epcot too, because it wasn't just a history lesson. We start to get into looking towards the future and transportation of the future and. The attraction ended or came close to its end with one of my favorite, very, very simple effects. Actually, two relatively simple effects that I love. One that I used to enjoy back in If You Had Wings and another one that uses the same quote-unquote technology as the Haunted Mansion. And that were the speed tunnels or the speed speed rooms, uh, which you still sort of get in Buzz Lightyear now, where you sort of get these... Uh, curved walls and curved archways that cover you from uh, on the left side and on top, and you get projections uh, all around you to get you to give a sense sort of that you are getting a first person perspective in what you're doing. So you're getting different examples of travel. Um, I remember skiing and flying, and I think um, the, the, the next scene was very very futuristic, um, very much Tron like, not very much by coincidence, I'm sure. No, I'm sure there was no coincidence. Right. You're right. You're moving through this cone in these, you know, they call them the speed tunnels because they had sped up, sped up the film to make you look like you were moving so much faster than you really were. And you go through these cones, and then you'd end up in this futuristic city that they called um, Center Core. And it, you know, it was though I believe I could be I could be mistaken, but it was the only scene in the attraction that took up both the two floors, the 65 feet of the attraction, to create this futuristic cityscape with liquid neon and all these great effects to show you this is what we think transportation in the city of tomorrow is going to look like. Right. It was six stories high. Uh, very, very beautiful. Very vivid. Again, uh, very evocative of the, the, the sort of Tron environment. Um, 
that that was you know that that had come out right around the same time. Um, and again, giving you the sense that while we've seen the progression throughout history, history, history try and talk, um, <laughs> it, it's not ending here. Um, it, we're moving forward. There are airplanes, there are monorails, and there is a lot more to come in the future. And of course, General Motors will be right there at the forefront. Absolutely. They're going to have the car of the future for you. And as you move out of that, that cityscape, you move into what they believe the, the future of cars are going to look like. And similar to the three hitchhiking ghosts, like you mentioned in the Haunted Mansion, you're given these bubble cars that put a dome over over your your vehicle that you're in, your on-the-mover vehicle, and sent you down down tomorrow's highways. Yeah, they, they forgot the um, the GM in 2009 scene. They didn't quite predict that one. <laughs> exactly they correct. No, they, they bypassed that. That was like a real short chapter they were hoping. Yeah, the bailout scene didn't quite make the final <laughs> cut. <so. laughs> but but the, uh, the post-show here is, is very important, and, and I want to talk about that because there were some notable aspects of that. And again, I think GM worked something in that was brilliant. But I, I want to talk about the attraction itself and i think you know we talk about ryan everything being about story and certainly here the history of transportation like you said it's important and it's interesting and it was educational but i think that because of not the story itself but the way the story was told that's what made this attraction so enjoyable so memorable and kept it around as long as it did because it was told with humor with whimsy with uh, again another great song you've got you know Exitensio Buddy Baker awesome combination you know right up there with the Sherman Brothers uh, it, it really gave you a reason to want to go back and keep seeing it over and over again and again for adults and for kids Cause remember I've kind of had that reputation early on there's nothing for kids to do kids are not going to enjoy these educational attractions I think this, this was very much uh not true for World of Motion. It had that kind of whimsy, like a kitchen cabaret did, that something maybe like a uh, some of the other pavilions might not, like a spaceship Earth. No, you're absolutely right. It had the the formula that they had, you know, crafted over the years of a catchy song that you that you'll be singing later. It had the humor. It had the the visual effects, the the wow moments that would bring you back time and time again. And it was just an overall great story. And you see that in things like Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion. These are, these are classic stories. These are told with the Disney flair to them that just bring you – want you to, you want to come back. Your kids want to come back. You know, and you're right. It has the whimsy. It's not like the Living Seas where you're going to sit and watch a film for eight minutes and the kid's going to be asleep on the floor at that moment. You know, it had the, the, those moments of you know, almost, almost like the imagination, the journey into imagination with Figment. You, know, you could see that creative spark. In this attraction, did you sit on the floor and listen to the deluge, or did you try and bolt through and get through the exit doors on the other side at Living Seas? No, I would watch. I would sit there and watch. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I think it was that that woman's voice. It was very kind of Bob Ross to me. It had that kind of mellow. You know, I could just sit there and listen to it all day. And eventually, I probably would have fallen asleep. But you know, it, it held my my interest for a little while. The smartest thing Disney ever did: not putting seats in the pre-show of the Living Seas. Yeah, yeah, because they, they, they would have people sitting through probably ten of the shows and not realize <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it. You don't actually have to get a room on Disney property anymore. You could just sleep at the Living Seas. Exactly. So, but yeah, let's let's talk about the post show because, uh, despite rumors to the contrary, every attraction in Walt Disney World does not exit you into a gift shop. Here, you entered something that was very prevalent in, in a lot of the Future World attractions, and that was a post show exhibit. More importantly, Ryan, a post show interactive exhibit. 
absolutely. I mean, you could you could touch the cars, you could see the cars. There were you know panels where you could help them work through elements. There were some tri- terrific shows: Order Engine, The Bird and the Robot. Uh, it it was th- it, just like the rest of the the building. It was kinetic. It was always moving, and you could always there was always something to touch, see, feel, and experience. Had very much of a communicore like feel to it. There was a lot to do there. I mean, you could really spend a lot of time in there. Like you said, there were this was called the Trans Center, by the way, and there was a lot of different exhibits that you could watch or you could touch. Again, you talked about the wind tunnel demonstration showing you how um, the design of the, of the cars have evolved and why uh, wind resistance and, and, and drag coefficients and all that kind of stuff makes such a difference. And you also had the water engine, which I'm still holding out for, um, and the Dreamer's Workshop, which I loved, which were the concept cars. Again, still holding out for those, uh, for my little Jetsons mobile. But I like the fact that these were all hands-on. You can go and you could touch and you can do things. And as a, a, a kid and as a, a, a geek kid, um, moving into a geek adult, um, I, th- these are some things I really, really enjoyed about Future World. Absolutely. The water engine was probably my favorite post-show of any attraction anywhere in Epcot Center. It just – I don't know what it was that sucked me in about this show, whether it was the, the great music, the catchy music they had at the beginning and end. Or these animated characters that were explaining to you the different engines, you know, the coal miner, a mad scientist, a cowboy, a superhero, a little girl, all explaining to you about, you know, engines like the coal burning, the magnetic, the, the water engine that, that you were going to see in the future. And we've not yet seen those, but maybe, maybe that's in, you know, 2015, I guess, at this point. Um, but you're right. You had the Dreamers Workshop with all of these cars, you know, you had – some of the names are still out there even for today, but you had a hinge car, aero freighter, hyper ski. You know, I I was the kid with Legos building these things when I got home, and you know I'm still waiting for you know my hyper ski. Right. <laughs> I know where that is. One of the most notable uh, and memorable parts of the Po Show was a non-interactive exhibit, but it was called the Bird and the Robot Show, and it was an audio animatronic toucan um, with a very Interesting sort of, you know, old style, very stereotypical New York accent with the with this cigar hanging out and a robot um, who was really nothing more than uh, an assembly line robotic arm called Tiger. And they did a almost like a vaudeville style act back and forth, um, which was interesting and brilliant because that kind of stuff just fascinates me how they build these things for the assembly lines and you see how precise and how didactic they are and that was one of the things that they were trying to show off were the tricks that tiger was able to do that he could roll over that it could play dead that it can conduct an orchestra while bird again much like the attraction is out there telling jokes trying to ham it up uh, and, and here's a here's a did you know do you know what tiger was the very first audio animatronic to ever do mm-hmm no, I don't. I mean, I'm thinking, and I'm, I can't. I cannot pull it out. He was the very first audio animatronic to ever pick up an object. He had a um, he had like a, a carpet bag type of thing in front of him, right? And he would reach into it, and he would pick up things like his conductor's wand or whatever it was. Right. He had a, he had the applause sign. You know, he tried to emulate emotion with all of the pieces he was picking up and showing how he worked. Yeah. Again, simple, brilliant. I mean, those are some of the things that I remember. Um, sort of sticking with me. But like we said at the beginning, 
you know, half of the first floor is this trans center, and GM wanted to make full use of not just demonstrating the future technologies that they're working on, get me my water car, but, oh, by the way, here's some of our GM vehicles if you'd like to take them for a look. Yeah, and and they had, you know, all their top of the top end, you know, top of the line models there for you to sit in, take your picture and, you know, and I'm sure I wasn't the only kid who went home and watched, you know, when we were getting that car in our driveway. You know, exactly. my, my beat up station wagon was not going <laughs> to cut it anymore once I had been in some of these models. But again, considering how many tens of millions of people go through that attraction every year, you cannot that get that kind of PR and visibility anywhere else. And I mean, you still have it to a certain degree now at Test Track, and we'll talk about Test Track in a minute. But at the time, I mean, you just, again, brilliant you know, use of that space by, by GM as far as getting their brand out there. Absolutely. And that's what we're talking about. They wanted to get in on the ground floor at Epcot Center because that was, going, that was the place everyone wanted to be. And that meant that everyone was going to see your vehicles and you were going to get the exposure that no one else could pay for. Absolutely. It's a 365 day a year, you know, Christmas, holidays, morning, noon and night staffed showroom um, with a captive audience that you now have hopefully excited about transportation and technology. And, hey, look at these newfangled automobiles that you might not have gone out to look at otherwise. Right. It brought it to you. And made it, you know, impossible to really look anywhere else at that moment because this was this was what the future was, clearly. Right. And your kids are engaged. They're watching. They're playing. They're interacting. They're touching. What are you going to do? You're going to walk around and look, maybe pick up a brochure on your way out. So, uh, so again. Yeah. Check out, check out the sticker. See what, you know, see what is new, you know, power locks, air conditioning, you know, things that, that your neighbor didn't have back then. Right. And again, we see, we still see this at the post-show area of Test Track. I mean, they're continuing to do the same thing as well, highlighting some of the various models available through the GM brand. And again, there's people who are there, staffed, ready to talk to you about it, give you more information, whatever it may be. But you can sit, get inside, touch, whatever it is. Um, you know, And who knows, when you get home, go see your GM dealer. Right, and they had the brochures to take home, you know, the, the complimentary you know, souvenir brochures that would tell you about these vehicles and you had the pictures so when you got home you remembered how excited you were exactly exactly so but 1982 come 1992 sorry comes and their 10-year agreement comes to an end and you know uh, gm now has to decide what they're going to do as far as far as their uh, corporate sponsorship is concerned remember the economy 92 not necessarily the best um, but they do continue to sign a series of uh, one-year agreements um, to keep the attraction open to keep their sponsorship going while at the same time talking to Disney about wanting to move even forward for a new attraction um, because they think, I, I guess they sort of felt that World of Motion had sort of run its course, pardon the pun, and wanting to focus not necessarily on general, the, the sort of the concept of transportation as opposed to, hey, we make cars. We don't make hot air balloons. We don't make you know, boats and planes. We make cars. We want to show people this is what we do. We want to focus on what GM is doing. And hence, uh, World of Motion closes in January on the 2nd of 1996 as they start to tout what's coming next after a number of years, which is Test Track. Right. And, and they, they sign a new 
track that's going to take them to through 2007. And you know, I take it for what it's worth. I've heard a story out there that you know the the executives at GM took a last ride on on World of Motion and it broke down halfway through and they had to walk <laughs> to the exit. So we go full circle back to the foot power again. Um, but if the one thing of World of Motion did that that I guess helped someone like me and Yulu was that it kept Horizons open a few more years. That's right. <laughs> Very true. Very true. And yeah, because remember they had talked about how Test Track was going to open in 1997, then late 97, then 97 became 98, 98 became 99, etc. and so forth. But um, I think you know I remember why I remember World of Motion. While it had an Omnimover system, which which had a lot of flow-through for guests, I remember there being lines. I remember there being lines outside. And obviously, you know, they, they trick you because it looks like there's not a big line outside. And then you get inside and there's the big dark queue and you're back and forth. Uh, but I always felt that World of Motion was still a, a relatively popular attraction. Yeah, I can never remember just walking on that ride. You would be, you know, in the switchback on the inside in the big gray dark carpeted queue area and then outside you had that little bright blue tiled plaza entry plaza where you're right you'd look oh well the entrance is right there i'm going to be right in there but it, it, because it was an omnimover you still had that sense of motion you were constantly moving in the line you never stopped and so it, it carried from the moment you got in the line to the time you got off the ride and you know and we talk about how much, especially nostalgic like, like us, we talk about how much we miss Horizons. We can't believe that they took Horizons down. But think back. I mean, in all fairness, part of Horizons' relative popularity was the fact that there was never really a wait for Horizons. And, and dare I say, you might have actually had more of a wait for World of Motion than you would have had for Horizons. I, I think you're right with that because, I, like I said, I can never remember a time when I didn't have to wait in some sort of line to get on World of Motion. And I remember plenty of times, you know, walking right on to Horizons and sometimes catching the board customer by surprise when somebody walked up to, to get on a, on one of your vehicles. Um, so World of Motion definitely had the mass appeal coming back, and I think that's one of the reasons GM wanted to stay around. They wanted to stick around. They wanted to see what can we do next. What's the next level for this attraction? Exactly, and obviously Test Track is, is very well deserving of its own sort of DSI and look into it. And, you know, with that, we'll have to talk about what the future may bring. You know, as, as we're recording now, uh, because of the financial state of the General Motors company, you wonder how that's going to possibly change going forward. Does the corporate sponsorship change? And if it does change, you know, we can look back at this show years from now and say, well, is Test Track going to remain open? Is it going to remain open in its current state? Are they going to change the theming of it somehow? So that will be interesting to sort of look back um, and see. So, all right. Test track or world of motion? What would you rather ride? Oh, that, you know, they're, they're both great in their own rights. Uh, I, I'm more of a fan of story and I think world of motion has the better story. Uh, it's also one of those that I grew up with. So maybe I'm just, you know, being a little nostalgic, but I'd say world of motion. I'm, I'm with you. I, I'd say world. Of, and again, it could just be the nostalgia in us coming out. Um, I mean, I love test track, um, I think it's it's great for what it is. Again, it's not about story; it's about seeing the different things along the way and, and that thrill that you get at the end, which I think is is excellent. Um, but I, I do remember as a kid and as a teenager enjoying World of Motion. Um, you know, would it hold up today? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it would still hold up today. We had that same argument about Horizons. Would it hold up today if it came back in its exactly the same uh, form as it did when it left? But uh, 
one thing you know we talk about all the time tributes to some of these extinct attractions we we find that um, in a, in something like Mission Space, where you see tributes to Horizons, we see it elsewhere for things like Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Not really very much for World of Motion. There's a couple of things here and there. There's a car in the queue that is from World of Motion. Uh, you can actually find some of the chickens over at Mickey's Toontown Fair at, at the Barnstormer, um, and I think some of the, the the props were moved over to the back lot over at, at Hollywood Studios. Yeah, you can still see some of those um, some of those props on the, on the back lot, and the, like you said, the chickens at the Barnstormer, um, right in the queue, right near their own chicken exit, they're still sitting out, they're still hanging out right there. Um, but otherwise, they they really you really have to know what to look for to find anything on World of Motion. It's not it's not out there in plain sight for someone to go, oh, you know that look that reminds me of. Um, so yeah, it's one of those attractions that kind of changed it. It kind of it it passed with the time. Right, and again, you might see if you take the standby queue in Test Track, you'll find um, a couple of the cars in there. Actually, the first car that you see on the right-hand side, it's, I think it's like a 1910 something. <laughs> is right. uh, it's a white vehicle? I think that was one um, from the attraction from from the World of Motion attraction. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a few there. Yeah, for the most part, right? It's it's pretty much gone the way of the dodo to gut that entire building to rehab it for test track there were so many elements you know are they in the archives somewhere you know do they have a warehouse like at the end of indiana jones where they have all this stuff stashed or did, did it just get you know put on the the pile and and hauled away right did some some guy say you know what maybe i should take this copy of the, you know this mona lisa reproduction here and and put it in my house or or uh, or some of the other great props that were there yeah put the put the the wings up there you know or what happened to the films, you know, all the films of the wheels or when you had the Indians chasing the cavalry and the cavalry chasing the Indians. Yeah, where are these films at today? Exactly. So, so much good stuff in there. And I would love to hear more from listeners uh, about their memories of World of Motion. Um, if they saw it, if they, what they found memorable, what they liked, what maybe they didn't like about it. Um, by all means, please email me at lou at wdwradio.com or call the voicemail at 888-703-2171. Uh, as always, Ryan, these are so much fun to kind of take a step way back with you uh, on these Epcot retrospectives and some other extinct attractions and take a look at these. You can find out more about Ryan and all his good stuff over at the Main Street Gazette. I'll link that up in the show notes. And uh, thank you, as always, my friend. Oh, not a problem. It's always fun being down memory lane with you, Lou. to announce the winner of last week's contest. As you recall, last week was a little bit different. I didn't do a normal five-question trivia contest or even a where in the world have you heard this contest. A little bit different. I did Name That Disney World Tune, where I played five song clips from Disney World attractions, background music, various places throughout the parks and resorts, and asked you to identify those in order for a chance to win a t-shirt and a prize package. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play those clips again for you now, then I'll give you the answers.
So I don't think those were all that difficult. Like I said, I wanted to make this first one a little bit easy, so I gave you some extended clips. So here you go. Here are your answers in order. Number one, this one maybe was the toughest. It was Sounds Dangerous, starring Drew Carey over at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Number two was the theme from Test Track in Epcot. Number three, kind of related to Test Track and certainly related this week, it was Fun to be Free from World of Motion. Number four, that was Sunny Eclipse over at Cosmic Ray's Starlight Cafe. And number five was the theme song from Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, also in Future World in Epcot. Once again, you guys did a phenomenal job getting these right. Again, so many entries, so many correct entries. Congratulations to everybody. But what I did do was take all of them and I randomly selected one. And this week's winner of the WDW Radio Show t-shirt and a couple of other new giveaways in the prize package. A few surprises this week is Mark Silvestri from Rhode Island. So Mark, congratulations. I'll get your package out to you right away. Now, I'm not going to have a new contest this week, but definitely stay tuned over the next few weeks. I might do another Name That Disney tune, a Where in the World, a trivia contest, or maybe something else. Definitely stay tuned. Thanks again for playing. That's all the time we have this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. I have to quickly mention at the outset that if the show sounded a little bit different this week or there were any issues with the audio quality or levels, I sincerely apologize. I suffered a catastrophic crash of my production machine this week and spent many, many, many sleepless hours trying to resurrect it and the data that was lost in the process. Uh, I spent the next few days scrambling to get a new machine ready also learn a new application to produce the show. So I really do appreciate your patience and your understanding if things sounded a little off this week. And, and with so much going on and with Magic Meets next week and trying to get Fantasyland done and ready and out to you guys, timing was as bad as it could get. But um, I will take my own advice and keep moving forward again. Just wanted to apologize, let you know about the reasons why if something sounded a little bit different. But anyway, quickly... Thanking Ryan Wilson from the Main Street Gazette, that's MainSTGazette.com, for joining me on the Wayback Machine this week. And thanks to everybody who braved the heat and the humidity and the rainstorms to come to July's Meet of the Month last weekend on the boardwalk. I really appreciate everybody coming out and huddling under the awnings over at Seashore Suites. It was great to see so many old friends and make new ones and attach some faces and, and to names and emails. 
and just laugh and talk about Disney for a few hours. Who am I kidding? It really we were literally there till about eleven thirty that night. So thank you all uh, very much again. I know some of you drove like over three hours from South Florida to come up. I really appreciate you and everybody else taking the time out of your day and out of your weekend to join me. I really, really had a lot of fun with you guys. And I will be doing Meet to the Month for the rest of the year and hopefully beyond. The next one is going to be Saturday, August 29th. Uh, I took a lot of your suggestions and we will be holding this one at a Walt Disney World water park. And the general consensus seems to be that Typhoon Lagoon may be the best place to have it. So we're going to meet up at Typhoon Lagoon. I'll set up times and try and pick an exact location. I'll post those in the forums and on Facebook. I'll also talk about it more on the show. And thanks to the rain last weekend, I'll also be looking for a backup solution. Um, Talking about backup solutions on my computer crash. Anyway, I will find somewhere indoors, possibly over at downtown Disney somewhere in case the weather is bad. Again, I'll post all this information on Facebook and in the forums. And going forward... September's meet is going to be Saturday, September 26th. It's going to be at Disney's Animal Kingdom, probably around noon. That is the Adventures Club weekend. It's the Everest Challenge weekend. It's food and wine weekend. You've got a million reasons to come down and come by and say hi at the meet. Again, I'll post more information about specific times and locations. October's is going to be Saturday the 24th or Sunday the 25th. That's going to be Tower of Terror weekend, if you happen to be down for that. And again, I'll post November's and December's later on as well. Come by the site over at WDWRadio.com. I've got more new videos, new articles this week, including a new video where I wander world showcase in under nine minutes, mind you, meandering through the pavilions, exploring some hidden treasures. There's probably a little bit of food thrown in there somewhere. You can find all of my videos on the site, in iTunes, or on YouTube. And remember, if you subscribe to the show in iTunes, they'll automatically be downloaded as they are released. Don't forget that if you have any questions that you want answered on the show, send them to lou at wdwradio.com. Or if you want to be heard on the air, you can call toll-free at 888-703-2171. And speaking of emails, I get so many wonderful emails from you guys each and every week, and I swear I read every single one of them. Sometimes a little slow to answer, but I do I do read every one of them. And Oftentimes, many of you send me some amazing stories that you've experienced by yourself, with your spouse, with your parents, with your kids that are really, really wonderful. And you, t- and you talk about some of these memories that will last a lifetime. And I think a lot of these things that make us all love and enjoy Walt Disney World so very much. And sometimes I don't get to really read them on the show, but I want to let you know that for those of you that want to share some of these magical moments and special memories there is a new place and a new way to do that and that is in an upcoming new book called WDW Memories it's going to be published by Lizette Taranio and it's going to really help share the Disney experience by spotlighting some of these favorite Disney vacation memories that are told by you the guest but in addition to sharing the stories the book's also going to add a little something to help highlight the story and enhance your visits to Walt Disney World, including tips, ideas, trivia, inspiration, everything else about how you can help create these new memories for yourself, for your family, and for others. It's also going to showcase some of the areas and activities in Walt Disney World that maybe you have yet to experience. And we all know of how incredibly evocative and emotional Walt Disney World can be. 
and the WDW Memories book is going to put all these stories together to share with others and continually let you get captivated by the magic at home. But more importantly, it offers you a chance to have your story published in the book. And for more information, you can go and visit mywdwmemories.com or check out the Facebook fan page. I'll link both of those up in this week's show notes. Speaking of Facebook, come on by, be my friend on Facebook and join the WDW Radio Show fan page. That's at facebook.com slash WDW Radio or facebook.com slash Lou Mangiello. And if you aren't following me on Twitter, come by, that's at twitter.com slash Lou Mangiello. I post updates throughout the day, play games, post pictures and audio from the park, lots more. Also, probably the best place to find out exactly what's going on when get instant access to the latest information that I release. Speaking of new releases, nice segue, Lou. Fantasyland, the third in my audio guide to Walt Disney World series, is now available for pre-order on CD. And this week, it will also be available for instantly downloadable version. The CD is going to run for $9.99. The downloadable version is going to run $7.99. Again, you'll find a link to that right at www.radio.com on the homepage, or just look at the navigation bar and click on the shop link right there. Stay tuned for a new WDW Radio Live audio and video broadcast with chat coming very, very soon. And if you are a subscriber to Celebrations Magazine, start getting ready to look for issue six coming in your mailbox very soon. If you're not subscribed, you want to subscribe, more information or back issues, you can go and visit celebrationspress.com. Thank you, as always, to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel. You know they are my official and recommended travel provider for all your vacation planning needs. All-Star Vacation Homes has more than 150 houses within five miles of Walt Disney World. A great way to save money renting a vacation home that have private pools and spas and kitchens and game rooms. So much more. I'm going to be highlighting more from All-Star Vacation Homes very, very soon. And if you're looking into the DVC, maybe thinking about DVC by resale, head on over to dvcbyresale.com. Also go and check out dvcbyresale.com slash blog. There you can find Chantel Crawford's blog. I actually met with her last week. Coincidentally, at the boardwalk, we shot a video all about Bay Lake Towers. Go by and check that out. And finally, don't forget about the Disney Dream Cruise. In 2011, we are looking to have a WDW radio cruise on the all-new Disney Dream in 2011, looking to gauge interest in possible sailing dates and times, as well as types of cabins you might be interested in. No obligation whatsoever. Again, just trying to find out when you might like to go, how many cabins we might have to take a look at. You can find links to the Facebook page and the forums right in this week's show notes. And again, everybody, if you like the show, all I ask is that you please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Review the show on iTunes. Come say hi on Facebook. Join the WDW Radio Show fan page. And uh, lots of exciting things, I promise, coming up in the next few weeks, including some very special guests, some new segments, and more. So please stay tuned. If you're a new listener, go on back, check the podcast archives, look at some of the older shows most of the content not really time specific i think you might find some topics and maybe some interviews and some segments you really will enjoy again you can find the list right under podcast at the wdwradio.com website so of course my friends thank you so very much for taking the time and tuning in thanks to everybody who came by last week so until next time remember 
much as I'm going to do this week. Keep moving forward. Follow your dreams. I hope you guys have a fantastic week. See ya. Hey, Lou. It's Gavin from Sacramento. And uh, we're currently sitting on a private balcony at the Grand Californian in, uh, in Disneyland. And uh, I'm here with, um, with my girlfriend, Stacy. She wants to tell you what just happened. We just got engaged. It was perfect. I love Disneyland. <laughs> Gavin's awesome. Oh, now we're te- he's technically my fiance now, I guess. No, that's it. Just wanted to tell you, Lou, that it was uh, during the fireworks, and it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, not to toot my own horn. All right, love the show. Bye. Hey, Lou, it's Beth. I'm here at the Magic Kingdom, and it's pouring down rain. Hanging out in Columbia Harbor House, having some dinner, and I just happened to bring along the top ten things to do when it's raining at Walt Disney World. So I listened to that while I was eating by myself, and then I went outside, and I thought, all right, I'm going to use that list. I'm going to find out something to do. So I scurried over to Hall of Presidents, and there's a show in ten minutes. So just wanted to let you know that it was very timely, so what to do when it's raining in Walt Disney World. And by the way, this was not a little ten-minute uh, light rain that you and Tim were talking about. It's probably been raining for about an hour with the thunder and the lightning and the whole thing. So should make for an interesting evening here at the Magic Kingdom. Take care, Lou. See ya. Hey, Lou and all you WDW radio fan listeners. This is Stephanie from Wisconsin, Monica from Michigan, and Katie from Illinois calling you from Gibson Girl Ice Cream Parlor on Main Street in Disneyland, California. We're enjoying our last day here at Disneyland. We hope to be back real soon. Bye. Hey, Lou, this is Kevin in Denver. I just want to say hello and thank you for the podcast and the website. Uh, I've been unemployed here uh, since January. Um, Very difficult. And your website and your uh, radio show have given my wife and I something to smile about, something we really enjoy and look forward to. Uh, We have been to Disney World uh, a couple of times, most recently in March. And the thing we liked the most about it was just spending the evening on the beach at the Polynesian watching the sunset and then the Wishes show across the lake. Anyway, just want to say thank you. It means a lot. We really, really appreciate it, and we appreciate that all you have done. Thank you very much. Hey, Lou. It's Mike Scabetta. How you doing? I just want to bring up three things to you and the listeners. Number one, I want to thank you uh, on the air for the fabulous YouTube video entitled Walt Disney World uh, Radio Catching You Breathless in Walt Disney World. You did an awesome job. You and Glenn did a great job really capturing the essence of uh, Breathless. Um, You you made me look better than I am. So uh, if if the listeners haven't seen that yet, just go on YouTube and check it out. As of today, Monday, 727, we've had 717 views, but only 10 ratings and 9 comments. So come on, guys. Get out there. Look at the video and uh, give it some ratings and some uh, some some comments for us, okay? Second thing, you spoke about Yachtsman Steakhouse on uh, show 129 about uh, going to the steakhouse after Illuminations. Let me tell you, as long as it's not the Christmas season between Thanksgiving and New Year's Eve when Illuminations is at 9.30, absolutely no problem making a 9.45 
uh, ADR at Yachtsman Steakhouse. Yachtsman Steakhouse closes at 10, but the last seating that you can make is 945. Remember, Lou, I was behind that podium for seven years, so I know Yachtsman Steakhouse really well. And um, I would strongly suggest making an ADR. Yes, the restaurants are almost empty by uh, 9.30, 9.45, but remember, as the restaurant starts to empty out, servers are cut from the floor. So at 9.45, there may only be three servers left on the floor, um, covering usually the rotunda area is usually the last place that they rem uh, keep open because most people like to sit in the window area there. So make an ADR for 9.45. You can tell the driver of your pontoon or your breathless driver that you do want to get right back to the dock and make it over to um, Yachtsman Steakhouse. You will have no problem when illumination starts at 9 o'clock or 9.05, depending how, how s promptly they get it started. The show's only 12 to 15 minutes long. That you get you out of there by 9.20, the latest. It's only a 10-minute ride back to the dock. Um, so just tell your driver, you know, don't dilly-dally. You don't have to drive around the boardwalk one more time. We want to get to Yachtsman Steakhouse. You will not have a problem. Now, if you want to do it beforehand, then I strongly suggest giving yourself two hours from your ADR until um, check-in time at the marina. You're paying a premium dollar for great food and great service at Yachtsman Steakhouse. You don't want to rush your meal. Enjoy it. Give yourself two hours. Make that ADR for 5.45 or 6 p.m. for an 8 o'clock check-in at the marina. Like I said, you don't want to rush your meal when you're spending that much money and you want to enjoy Yachtsman Steakhouse. So before or after, it's up to you. Third and final thing, you mentioned proposals on a pontoon boat. Uh, I've had quite a few over the years, a couple on breathless and a couple on pontoon boats. They always work out well, but the most important thing is when you check in, ask to speak to your driver, make sure your driver's aware of it. I've had cruises where even though the guest told uh, the reservation service that they wanted to propose, that information didn't filter down to the driver, and you could be put in an awkward position. So just Try to catch the driver on the side. A lot of times we're prepping the boats. We're walking in and out of the marina, going up and down the dock, bringing potato chips and sodas and getting everything ready for the cruises. Just s slip away, grab, find out who your driver is, and pull him over to the side, him or her to the side, and just say, hey, listen, I'm gonna planning on proposing tonight, and discuss it with them or her, and what would be the best time to do it. I usually recommend... Um, the time when the song is playing just before the finale. It's a great time to drop down on one knee, get the proposal, get her to say yes, and then the finale happens and it looks real beautiful. You get a lot of applause from the people standing on the bridge. Hi, Lou. This is Dave from Iron Georgia again. We are going into the Monsters in Lab floor. We just finished a wonderful ride, Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. A great tribute to the man and his visionary work that he had some 45 years ago for the 1964 World Fair. So uh, we've already uh, <clears throat> partaken of some uh, Dole Whip this afternoon, so we've gotten that out of the way, and I've been looking forward to that all week, I can tell you that. 
So we're going to do a few more things before uh, heading out this evening here at Magic Kingdom. So we'll talk to you again tomorrow. See ya. Hey, Lou. This is Christian calling from Fernandina Beach, Florida. I just got done listening to your uh, show 125 with Tim Foster talking about the top 10 places to get wet in Walt Disney World in the summer. And uh, I just had a little something to tell you when you guys were talking about Splash Mountain and getting wet on that first little bend going up. Uh, me and my brother, we went there, uh, say, about two weeks ago, three weeks, four weeks ago. And uh, we went on the front row thinking that we were not going to get soaked, but we got drenched, socks, everything. So if I could just say this, I'd say think twice about getting in the front row. <laughs> Thanks. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Bye. Had to get to my socks. Hey, Lou, this is Nick from Nick and Sophie in Arkansas. I just want to tell you, I just finished listening to episode number 49 where Steve Barrett's talking about Hidden Mickeys and the Great Movie Ride. And in the Indiana Jones section of the ride, uh, he mentioned the C-3PO and R2-D2 uh, that were hidden in the ride. And I just thought it would be nice to say that uh, this just goes to show how uh, detailed and uh, authentic and, well, how uh, how much the Imagineers care about recreating faithfully the scenes from the movie ride because the C-3PO and R2-D2 hieroglyphs, were actually featured in the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, and I thought that was just a great little testament to how detailed and accurate the Imagineers were. Thanks, Lou. Bye. Hey, Lou, it's Josh from Michigan. Um, everyone, I'm going to take a break from the uh, tips. I know I haven't called in the past couple of weeks, but, I mean, as soon as I call in, I realize that it's late Saturday and Lou's already got the show made up. So um, right now it is Monday morning, and I just listened to the new show with the emails and everything. Lou, good show. But what I really wanted to talk about is, um, well, one of my hobbies besides collecting Disney memorabilia is collecting uh, autographs, uh, celebrity signatures, and uh, TV shows, movies, and uh, everything. What I do is I uh, I send fan mail to people and then send them an item, a letter, an SASE, and um, then they will, oh, an SASE stands for uh, signed and I don't know, signed and stamped envelope or something like that. But anyway, um, I've been sending stuff to people, and I sent something to Michael Eisner, and uh, I asked him if he'd want to come on the radio show. Most people, I've asked uh, quite a few people to come on the show, like uh, Dick Van Dyke, but that didn't work. So I asked Michael Eisner, and I got back a letter typed out and then signed by him, and it says, Dear Josh, Thank you for your very nice letter. I am always happy to hear from fans of Walt Disney World, and I enjoyed reading about your favorite places in the park. Thank you for suggesting me as a guest on the WDW radio show, but I am just too busy at the moment to go on the show. I wish you with the best, very best of luck in all your future endeavors. Very truly yours, Michael D. Eisner. So, Lou, you see that? Michael D. Eisner now knows about your show. Your show. So, uh... And uh, in the past week, I've got back Dick Van Dyke, Pat Oswalt from Ratatouille, and Tim Allen from Toy Story. And then I got a park ticket signed by Michael Eisner. All right, everyone, enjoy. Bye. 